Welcome to the 9th of January, 2024 edition of the Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast, where we connect you to the history of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. I'm Jeffrey Bigamede, your host. I'm a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut. And as always, it's my pleasure to welcome you. The Greenwich Town for All Season Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Coming up on today's show. You'll hear about the Colonel Reynolds C. Bowling statue that is located today on the front lawn of the Havemeyer Building on Greenwich Avenue. Also, private schools in Greenwich a century ago. A battleship visited Greenwich Harbor in 1916. I'll also have some news and word about the Edward Mead House. That's the one at at Indian Field Road in East Putnam Avenue, built in 1832. Whitman Bailey introduces us to the Brush Brothers, and I will be asking and I will be sharing a sample of Recollections of the Pickwick Arms Hotel. And, of course, on Crimes and Misdemeanors, <laughs> Bootleggers galore. We'll have all that and more as our history continues to unfold. Stay tuned. We'll be right back after these important messages. Support is made possible by a landscape architecture firm with an optimistic view of the future. Alexander Affiliates is a professional landscape architectural firm specializing in designing and planning visually appealing, functional, and environmentally responsible outdoor spaces for residential and commercial developments. From backyard perennial garden preparation to regional coastal planning, we have you covered. In addition, we serve a global clientele that has brought in a lot of business for us through word-of-mouth referrals. Some of Alexander Affiliate's clients include construction companies, land and property developers, government offices, engineering companies, geographers, and soil samplers. Its mission is simple. Instead of focusing on saving the planet, let's concentrate on thriving together. In business since 1980, you can learn more about Alexander Affiliates by going online to alexanderaffiliates.com. To learn more and to contact Alexander Affiliates, you can call 203-869-8632. Again, that's 203-869-8632. Its mailing address is P.O. Box 711, Greenwich, Connecticut, 06836. Eastern Neurological Services of New York offers comprehensive neurologic diagnoses and therapeutic services. Dr. Judy Gao, MD, a top New York neurologist, specializes in dynamic treatment of neurological diseases, neurorehabilitation, and physical therapy. With convenient locations in New York City and a multilingual staff, Eastern Neurological Services offers a wide array of treatments for neurological disorders, including general neurological consultations, on-site diagnostic testing, and physical and neurocognitive therapy. Now, the most trusted platform for medical products you need is available for you at healthsitepro.com. Shop online for the best in preventative medicine and health maintenance. These products are used by Dr. Gao and her family, and if they're good enough for them, well, they're good enough for you as well. Visit easternneurologic.com or call 212-889-6540 or 212-227-6540. 
6500. Well, thank you, Kevin M.J. O'Connor, Vice President of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, knowledgeable in the complexities of the financial markets with a passion for servicing clients and their financial needs. My friends, learn more at jeffreymatthews.com or call Kevin M.J. O'Connor at his Greenwich office, telephone 203 285-7595. Again, that's Kevin M.J. O'Connor, his Greenwich office at 203-485-7595. Ladies and gentlemen, there is one historic landmark here in Greenwich, Connecticut that is unfortunately no longer with us that is truly iconic. And um, I'm referring to of course, especially if you have lived here for any amount of time, the Pickwick Arms Hotel that once stood at the top of Greenwich Avenue and East Putnam Avenue. Uh, There is an office park there today, but in 1972, it was very sadly uh, demolished, uh, much to the chagrin of uh, many people here. Now, if you follow me on my personal Facebook page, which is Jeffrey Bingham Mead, or you follow the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show, uh, on uh, Facebook, and you can do that by looking for Greenwich, a town for all seasons with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I gave my um, followers and listeners and everybody um, an assignment of sorts, posting uh, a picture of the uh, Pickwick Arms Hotel, and it says as follows, you're invited to share your historic ties and memories of the Pickwick Arms Hotel for Greenwich, a town for all seasons with Jeffrey Bingham Mead. I'm looking for people who have experiences and memories of this majestic hotel that was demolished in 19. 19- To this day, there are those who lament its destruction. Your comments uh, will all be featured on a future podcast show. Uh, Please contact me, and you can do that. This is the email address at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. That's all one word, by the way. Now, um, a number of people have posted brief comments um, uh, on Facebook, which is uh, okay, too. I don't mind that it didn't, you know, throw me for a loop or anything. Um, but there are those who followed my directions and um, and did so um, on uh, on email. And one of those that I'm going to read to you right, right now is from Lynn Lavalette, and she um, uh, was delighted uh, to um, to share some. Uh, some comments, and I'm going to share those with you right now. She says, Hi, Jeffrey. Saw your post asking for recollections of the hotel and wanted to share my childhood memory of the hotel that I cannot confirm is actually happening as I was three years old at the time. Well, that's okay, Lynn. It's hard. <laughs> you got to start somewhere. <coughs> Excuse me. Somewhere circa 1955 to 1956, my family stayed at the uh, Pickwick Arms for several days while waiting for our newly purchased house in Millbrook to close. We moved there from Illinois in 1955 or 56. I have a vague memory of getting up in the middle of the night for a fire alarm and having to go outside to the front of the hotel with all the other guests, maybe even uh, with a blanket wrapped around me. I've always wondered if this really happened or my childhood imagination is tricking me. The only way to know for sure is if there's a documented fire during that time frame. If a false alarm, then it probably didn't make the local paper. I have no other memory of the hotel other than this event. I look forward to reading of others' actual recollections. Mine is a nothing burger. Lynn, I disagree, but that's okay. Unless it can be verified, and I'm looking at looking into this, by the way. I hope that someone else does recall some such event 
that had everyone outside that night. Good luck with your endeavors. Sounds great. And thank you very much, Lynn Lavalette of Cascab, uh, for your comments. No, we are looking into uh, into these things. I'm, I'm really very interested in um, uh, doing a series of spots uh, uh, throughout uh, various episodes of um, of, the, uh, of this podcast about the um, uh, about the Pickwick Arms Hotel. It is such a remarkable place. I have vague memories of it as well. I was very young when it was uh, demolished. Uh, something that, again, as I've said before, was so sad to um, to all of us. There are some people that even have memorabilia uh, that they um, went out with and um, and kept in the family. If you'd like to uh, contact me about that with images, please do so. You can send those to me at Greenwich Town for All Seasons at gmail.com. I do look forward to hearing from you. Thank you. Well, if you lived in Greenwich, Connecticut in November 1920, you would have opened up your a copy of the Greenwich News and Graphic on the 19th of um, of that month, and you would have seen an article about the statue that many of us uh, pass by almost every day, and that is the Colonel Bowling statue that is at the intersection of Greenwich Avenue and Arch Street. It is on uh, the um, the front of the Havemeyer Building or Havemeyer School Building, I should say, and um, and and being that this is the uh, uh, the, the Gilded Age era, I thought that I would share this with you. The reason why this is so important is that um, uh, Colonel Raynell C. Bowling and his wife Anna P. Bowling um, were the owners of Greyledge. It was one of the great estates um, that um, existed, one that was um, uh, constructed in uh, 1912 to 1915 over in the uh, Dublin Road area. Unfortunately, the um, uh, the mansion was demolished some years ago, um, but nevertheless, it is an important part of our of our history. But this statue of Colonel Bowling is um, of tremendous interest to us here in Greenwich, and I'd like to share some details, uh, courtesy of the uh, Greenwich News and Graphic. Let's see. the uh, The figure in bronze is seven feet high with carved marble background. It was about a year ago, the story goes, that E.C. Potter, the noted sculptor of Greenwich, began the work on a statue of the late Colonel Raynell C. Bowling, one of the first prominent American victims of the World War, that would be World War I, who was killed by a German bullet while performing a valiant service for his country. The statue, which is being admired by many friends of the late Colonel Bowling at Mr. Potter's studio on North Street here, is nearly completed. It will be presented to the town as a memorial a number of Colonel Bowling's intimate friends having raised the requisite funds through private subscriptions. The location of the statue has not yet been determined, but a meeting of the committee appointed to take the necessary steps for such a memorial will be held in the near future, at which time a definite site will be selected. The statue is a masterpiece. The figure, which is about seven feet in height, is of bronze and is a splendid likeness of the colonel. The regular officer's uniform and high army shoes with aviation cap carried in the left hand, and gloves and walking stick in the right hand, all add to the general effect of the figure. The face is looking upward and has that same noble expression which was so characteristic of Colonel Bowling. Over the left breast is the insignia of an eagle. The figure stands on a pedestal upon which is inscribed the name Bowling in large letters. The stone background, which will be light in color, is 14 feet 2 inches overall in height, while the sub-base is 12 by 8. Cut of the stone background are hills um, in either corner with two oh, aeroplanes flying above. 
The main stone weighs about 12 tons. Colonel Bowling, who was a lawyer by profession and also interested in the Steel Trust, gave up his large practice in New York soon after the outbreak of the war, at which time there was a great lack of airplanes in the country on a, comparative, a comprehensive uh, scale. In order that he might study these the conditions, he was sent overseas by the government and visited the French, English, and Italian fronts. He was really the man who had a vision for this particular need in the aeroplane branch of the service, and it was largely due to his painstaking efforts that the country woke up to the necessity of improving these conditions, which brought about such remarkable results later. It was later engaged in his line of work about March 25, 1918, that he lost his life. With his chauffeur, he was driving in a car near Amains when he ran into a nest of Germans and was shot by a Hun, quote-unquote, bullet through the heart. He returned at the fire and is said to have killed one German soldier. His chauffeur was taken prisoner. All efforts on the part of the members of his family to locate the body proved futile, and it will probably never be known just where it is buried, but it is believed that it to be somewhere near the spot where he fell. That's pretty remarkable. Now, further in the same uh, edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic is um, this. It was on the uh, editorial page, and this reads as follows. Pending final decision on the question of the site for the Colonel Bowling statue, presumably the committee are giving due consideration to the various available locations which include the Havemeyer School grounds, the Post Office Plaza, a spot on East Putnam Avenue, etc. From all descriptions of Mr. Potter's creation, it is certainly, it is a certainty that it will adorn and dignify any location, regardless of the territorial zone. And there is no reason to doubt that the committee selection will be influenced by a due and aesthetic regard for effectiveness and best results. Speculation as to the final decision has been largely favored the post office plaza as the most central and accessible spot in the borough center. And aside from the fact that the imposing statue and panel would give character to the plot, another important consideration is that it would logically send, uh, to, tend to accelerate the movement presumably started years ago to erect thereon appropriate and enduring honor roll of our war heroes to replace the board fence whose one redeeming feature is artist George Wharton Edwards' victory that has served its purpose as a temporary memorial well enough and long enough to be slated for deserved and early retirement in favor of a testimonial that shall more adequately bear witness to the people's grateful appreciation of the services and sacrifices of their soldiers and stand for generations to come. best-kept secret in Greenwich, Connecticut is a marvelous destination with an even more extraordinary mission. Coffee for Good invites you to be a part of a magical story in a restored historic mansion that inclusively brings people together. Thanks to a unique non-profit partnership between Abelis and the Second Congregational Church, when you enter the doors of the 1858 Solomon Mead House, you'll be instantly drawn to the warmth and ambiance of Coffee for Good 
at 48 Maple Avenue. Serving coffee, teas, and delectable goodies and more, Coffee for Good is a self-sustaining teaching platform that trains people with special needs who acquire the skills and self-confidence they need to thrive in the community. Voted Best Coffee Shop by the readers of Greenwich Magazine, honored with the Community Impact Leader Award by the Connecticut Restaurant Association, and now the Jack Moffley Nonprofit Leadership Award, Coffee for Good is open daily, Monday through Saturday, 8 a.m. to 6 p.m. Enjoy free parking, free Wi-Fi, as well as year-round indoor and outdoor seating, a popular destination for gatherings, meetings, and a fantastic study spot, too. Coffee for Good is located at 48 Maple Avenue, behind the Second Congregational Church in the Putnam Hill National Historic District. Visit coffeeforgood.org. In the final week of August in 1916, a very unusual ship visited Greenwich Harbor. It was a battleship. (laughs) And I'm trying to, even today in the year 2024, trying to imagine a battleship being in Greenwich Harbor. But anyway, it did happen in 1916. Now, I'd like to share this with you. My source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic, published on Tuesday, August 29th, 1916. Battleship in Greenwich Harbor Sunday, says the headline, Samson, the latest type torpedo boat destroyer viewed by many while here. Officers, guests of the Indian Harbor Yacht Club. Well, that must have been nice. The torpedo boat destroyer Samson, one of the newest craft in the United States Navy, was anchored in Greenwich Harbor over the weekend, and hundreds of persons took advantage of the opportunity to inspect one of the units in Uncle Sam's great fleet of sea fighters. The regulation U.S. Navy uniform was much in evidence on the streets here Saturday evening and on Sunday, but the men ashore were all quiet and orderly, and no complaint was received by the police. Some of the officers were entertained at the Indian Harbor Yacht Club, and Captain Allen, commanding the Samson, was the guest of his father-in-law, Rear Admiral Mertz, retired U.S. Navy, at his home on Hillside Road. The Samson, which is the latest type of destroyer, was built at the Four River Yards in Quincy, Massachusetts, during the past two years, and she is everything that the uninitiated landsman would be likely to imagine a fighter fighting craft should be. She develops 30 knots per hour speed and is well equipped with guns of the most approved type. She is on what naval men call a shakedown cruise of several weeks through the sound under the supervision of Admiral Albert Gleaves and will probably anchor in Greenwich Harbor again in a few weeks. After taking on some food supplies, here the Samson weighed anchor and steamed up the sound Monday morning. It is always interesting to chance upon old daguerreotypes and photographs, writes Whitman Bailey in the December 31st, 1929 edition of the Greenwich News and Graphic. Now, before I go on, I want to tell you about Mr. Whitman Bailey. He was a columnist whose uh, writings appeared in the Greenwich Time and other newspapers in the um, area, such as in Stanford and Portchester. He was a sketch artist, and because he was colorblind, um, he didn't use color in any of his um, of his artistic works. And um, as such, they are um, very distinctive uh, sketches that uh, were published along with his articles. So the one that we have today is about characters about town in days gone by, and it focuses apparently on a couple of brothers. You may recognize the uh, the Rush family name in town. 
anyway, let's get on with it, shall we? Opening an old family album, he continues, one must always wonder if it is really clothes that make these people look so different or whether there was really a cast of countenance that was peculiar to an age. Certainly, for example, if one looks at men who served in the Civil War, one seems to feel that these were men who had convictions and who were willing to fight and die for their convictions. There is a fierce, undaunted look about the eyes and a square set to the jaw. It was with the feeling that he had gone back two generations that the artist sketched the portraits of Joseph E.B. Brush and his brother, Judge George W. Brush. Joseph Brush will be recognized by many old-timers who met him on the street in his own day for it was his delight to keep away from barber shops and to let his long white locks grow as they would. Joseph Brush also scorned a shave and much preferred to have his beard blowing in the wind. For a long time, he pottered about his father's shop at Coscob and often drove a team of oxen as far as Banksville, oxen being used in those days to break the snow-covered highways after a severe storm. Judge Brush, at the right of the artist's sketch, was, it is said, a very different sort of person. While his brother was aloof, he liked to mingle with his fellows in their village or their town affairs. In fact, records show that this familiar figure was not only justice of the peace, but also, at one time, a harbor master, at another a registrar of voters. It is also reported that he was in the habit of going frequently to Hartford on town business or to settle the affairs of some client who had sent him. These brothers died a few years ago. Even the old brush homestead which bore their name and which was beloved by artists has been pulled down. So has the store, leaving only fond remembrances of two distinct characters that once walked the streets of Greenwich. You're listening to the Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast, hosted by Jeffrey Bingham Mead. That's me, a direct descendant of the 17th century founders of the town of Greenwich, Connecticut, the gateway to New England. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons Show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services, Mr. Kevin M. J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Thank you. In a class by itself, the Greenwich Historical Society's museum store and artist's cafe is the discerning shopper's destination for unique gifts and accessories. Located in the Toby Tavern building at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, the museum store reflects the richness of Greenwich, Connecticut's renowned history. Browse the latest arrivals in the store and online. Enjoy online shopping and pickup. Ample free parking member discounts, and complimentary gift wrapping. Open Monday through Friday, 9 a.m. to 5 p.m., and weekends, noon to 4 p.m. Located at 47 Strickland Road in Coscob, enjoy complimentary coffee and tea in the warm ambiance of the Artist's Cafe. Learn more at GreenwichHistory.org. As you drive east on East Putnam Avenue in Greenwich, you gaze over 
to the left at the intersection with Indian Field Road, and you will see a very prominent Federalist-style home with tall chimneys and a beautiful porch. That is the Edward Mead House. It was built in 1832. A lot of people ask me about it, and lo and behold, in my um, readings uh, and uh, ventures into um, into the town's history, I found an article that was written by uh, our good friend Mr. Lucian B. Edwards uh, for the Greenwich News and Graphic um, in his column, Greenwich Life as it is and was. And I'm going to um, share a portion of this with you because it pertains to this particular house and to the man who built it. In the article of a few weeks ago, and by the way, before I go on, sorry about this, um, <laughs> my source on this is the Greenwich News and Graphic on Friday, June 8th, and that would be 1923. So we're just uh, a little over 100 years of, uh, ago. In the article of a few weeks ago, relative to the strong men mentally and physically living in Greenwich at about the time the Greenwich graphic was first issued, the statement was made that there may have been others. One in mind was Edward Mead. He passed away a few years previous to that time, but for the greater part of his life was contemporaneous with them. He was a man so universally respected and so and of such admirable qualities of character that some mention should be made of his life in the community. He lived on what may be called the Ancestral Estate, a large farm located on the Boston Post Road, the land being situated on both sides of that now greatly traveled thoroughfare, in the vicinity of what is now Indian Field Road, and in the fine white frame two-story and a half house on the north side of the road, having been a conspicuous landmark for years." The farm has been in the possession of this branch of the Mead family for a longer period of time than any other farm has been owned by any one family in the town of Greenwich, it is safe to say, members of Edward Mead's family still owning most of the farm and living in the attractive house. Until a few years ago, there was a number of farms that had been owned by one family in one instance since pre-revolutionary days, but they have now become the costly estates for which Greenwich is noted. Mr. Mead's son, Daniel Merritt Mead, was the first captain of Company I, 10th Connecticut Volunteers. Benjamin Wright, father of Wilbur S. Wright, was made lieutenant when the company was organized, and when Daniel Merritt Mead was promoted major in the regiment soon after the Greenwich Company had gone to the front, Benjamin Wright was made captain. Robert M. Wilcox, vice president and secretary of the Putnam Trust Company, is a grandson of Edward Mead. Previous to 1832, the house in which the Mead family lived was situated on the opposite side of the street from the present residence. In 1832, the present house on the north side was built and when completed was considered in every way one of the finest homes in Greenwich. Stagecoaches making regular trips between New York and Boston then and the attention of the passengers in them almost always was called to the house as one worthy of the special notice on the stagecoach route. But the chief feature of interest was the front door entrance. That is probably the most beautiful one architecturally of any house in the town of Greenwich. There are those much more costly, but none of more artistic appearance. The entrance became so noted that the attention of Wallace Nutting, the artist, whose pictures and colors have been sold in large numbers in all parts of the country, was attracted to it. With two young ladies of Greenwich dressed in colonial attire ascending the front steps. The title of the picture being, quote, A Trip to the Squires, unquote. 
Other objects that are of interest at the front of the house are the box shrubs. There are three of them, gigantic specimens each side of the front steps, having one, and they are probably 92 years old, the same number of years as the house. The one in the garden just west of the front lawn is 114 years old, having been planted in 1809. Now, let me go back um, a little bit, because I would like to mention to you this uh, artist or photographer by the name of Wallace Nutting, because he certainly caught my attention, and he should attach or or attract yours as well. Wallace Nutting was um, uh, born in 1861, and he died in uh, 1941. He was an American minister, photographer, artist, and antiquarian, who is most famous Um, for his landscape photos of New England. He also was an accomplished author, lecturer, furniture maker, antiques expert, and collector, and uh, his atmospheric photographs helped spur the colonial revival style. And he was born in Massachusetts, um, again in 1861, and uh, unfortunately his father was killed in um, in the Civil War. Um, his education, well, let's see. He graduated from high school in Augusta, Maine. He studied at Phillips Exeter Academy, Harvard University, Harvard Theological Seminary, and Union Theological Seminary as, um, as well. He had a Doctor of Divinity from uh, Whitman College, and he had received that in 1893, and also an Honorary Doctorate of Humanities from Washington and Jefferson College in 1938. Um, and um, he was a married man. He married Marriott Griswold of Buckland, Massachusetts. But the the most interesting thing that I found about um, him as it relates uh, to this house is that um, the work that uh, I just mentioned called Callers at the Squires, um, which was um, created around uh, 1905, is actually in the Getty Museum collections in California. Um, what I have done is that I have posted an image of this at the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show uh, uh, site at greenwichtownforallseasons.blogspot.com for today's show, uh, which of course is uh, January 9th, nineteen or eight, <laughs> twenty twenty four. I got my uh, my uh, ears mixed up. Oh dearie me! Um, but anyway, it is an exquisite image. It is absolutely stunning. Um, of um, the two uh, ladies walking up the steps and of the um, of the doorway. I also have a photograph of the doorway on that same page that I just um, mentioned, and uh, I, I think that you will find it absolutely exquisite. Well, it's time for Greenwich Life As It Is and Was. This was a column that appeared in the Greenwich News and Graphic, uh, in the well, about a hundred years ago, and uh, uh, it was by Lucian B. Edwards. The article that I'm going to um, read for you today is uh, called "The Private Schools," and it literally is about the private schools of Greenwich at that time. This was published on Friday, January 11th, 1924, so literally a, a century ago. And the story goes as follows. The town meeting held last week to consider the proposition for more school buildings and additions to some of the old buildings was what may be called a model town meeting. Hmm. There was a quiet and orderly discussion of the school situation, although there was adverse criticism of Greenwich Public Schools, as has been the case ever since a pamphlet was issued magnifying the unfavorable condition and saying nothing about the good features of the public schools a number of years ago. It certainly was ill-advised to send all over the country such a pamphlet and was a very poor advertisement for the town of Greenwich. 
The situation in Greenwich has been different in regard to schools from what they have been in other towns in the state, with the possible exception of Stamford, which, due to the nearness of, nearness of New York City, has had the same causes for increased accommodations that Greenwich has had. Henry Dayton, the quote-unquote grand old man, in his interesting remarks and clear, well-modulated tone of voice, explained the reason of the need for more public school accommodations for Greenwich when he said that during his life, the city of New York had increased in population from 500,000 to over 500 or five, what is this, five Five million? Well, all right. And that has been one of the reasons for the rapid growth in the population of Greenwich. New York families, because of the overcrowded conditions, uh, condition of New York City, coming to Greenwich to make their homes and Stamford as well. In the latter place, the necessity for more public schoolhouses and rooms has been met with in a sensible way, and no undue publicity made of the defects in the school buildings or public school system, but they have been remedied as rapidly as possible. In a conversation regarding the town meeting of last week, a prominent resident of Greenwich said to the writer that it is the same orderly, reasonable consideration of the school needs of Greenwich had been employed in the past, the new schoolhouses and additions would have been voted two years ago. Why, even Sound Beach Schoolhouse had to come in for a share of adverse criticism. Yet, when it was built largely through the persistent efforts of school committeeman Amesa A. Marks at a cost of $40,000, it was considered a model country school building and was the pride of Sound Beach, that would be Old Greenwich, by the way, for a number of years afterwards. When the building was built, Sound Beach, again, that's Old Greenwich, had comparatively few families living there all the year round. It was a summer place then. Now there are a large number of families living there, and more school rooms and improvements to the old building are needed. Let us hope that we have heard the last of the quote-unquote knocking of the Greenwich Public Schools that certainly have compared favorably to those of the other country towns of Connecticut, for Greenwich was only a country town 25 years ago. The private schools of Greenwich have been of a higher, high order of educational institution. Way back in 1833, a charter was obtained from the state of Connecticut for the organization of the Greenwich Academy Association, and a two-story frame building was erected near the location of Dr. F.C. Hyde's residence, which was taken down when Dr. Hyde built his house, a brick building being put up on the opposite side of Maple Avenue, some distance further up the street for the academy. In the old academy, a very fine mixed school was kept, attended by the boys and girls of the prominent families of Greenwich, notably so when Philander Button was the principal. Then, years ago, Jim Merrill kept a select girls' school, where M. Clemenceau, the famous French statesman, taught that language when a young man. Dr. Pineo, whose wife was a daughter of one of the famous patrons of the Second Congregational Church, for years had a boys' and girls' school in Greenwich attended by a large number of pupils. Up in Banksville in the 50s, that would be the 1850s, there was a boarding school for girls who came from New York mostly and were conveyed from Greenwich Railroad Station by stage. North Greenwich had an academy similar to the Greenwich Academy. 
In 1900, the Rosemary Hall School, now having 28 acres for school purposes in Rock Ridge, moved from Wallingford to Greenwich, followed by the famous Eli School of New York that has occupied fine school buildings on North Street. These two young ladies' schools are known all over the country and have been a great advertisement to attracting well-to-do families to Greenwich to live. Then there is the Edgewood School and the Brunswick School for Boys, and that is considered one of the best. Well, ladies and gentlemen, it's time for Crimes and Misdemeanors, a reminder that not everything was all tranquil and serene in the town of Greenwich. Um, crimes were committed. Uh, unfortunately, that is still the case even uh, today in the 21st century. Um, today's theme on the crimes uh, matter is bootleggers. Of course, this is during Prohibition, and um, the story that I have for you dates from October 30th, 1925, which goes as follows. It's titled Bootleggers Day in Court, Two Shipments of Alcohol Apprehended by Police. Could you imagine that happening today? I guess not. <laughs> Tuesday was Bootleggers Morning in the Greenwich Borough Court, there being two separate cases in which several men and women were implicated. Anthony Torello of 18 James Street, East Haven, and Anthony D. Fabio of 271 High Street, East Haven, were each charged with transporting liquor without a license. Judge William L. Tierney rep uh, represented the defendants. DeFabio pleaded guilty, but Torello entered a plea of not guilty. On Monday evening, Cornelius McCarthy, who is employed at the Greenwich Cab Company, testified that Torello came to the company's office offices and explained that a motor truck had broken down just below the railroad arch on Arch Street and asked to have them towed in to the garage. Mr. McCarthy complied with the request and Torello paid him out of his own pocket. After the truck had been towed into the garage, Officer Everett Barnes happened to drop into the cab company on other business and always being on the alert for rum runners, he noticed the truck and conceived the idea that there might be some liquor in the several barrels aboard the truck. He notified Sergeant Jack Scully, who was at the desk in police headquarters, and Officers John F. Conlon and, let's see, Fitzroy and William Burke were sent to investigate. When the officers arrived at the garage, they found DeFabio and Torello, as well as a woman who gave her name as Viola Jeffries and James Strati of 381 Saffin Street, New Haven. When Torello saw the blue coats, he mysteriously disappeared through a rear entrance to the building. DeFabio, Strati, and the woman were brought to police headquarters, and the truck was also towed to the rear of the town building. It was found to contain ten barrels of alcohol. All of the officers on the night beats were given a good description of Torello, and about 3 a.m., Officer Burke apprehended Torello walking in an easterly direction near Park Avenue. The officer called to Torello to stop, but instead of complying with the request, Torello wheeled about and started on a run toward Greenwich. The officer gave chase, but not until the officer fired two shots, the first bullet being discharged in the air and the second one dangerously near Torello. Did the latter finally surrender? Quote, "'What are you running for?' queried the officer. "'To get a shot over a load of booze?' 
Well, you have to get the lead. <laughs> you got to get the lead, and you got me, exclaimed Torello, according to the officer's testimony in court. Officer Robert Fitzroy testified that he saw Torello in the garage when he entered and he beat a hasty retreat. He positively identified Torello. DiFabio admitted that he owned the truck. Officer Conlon also testified. Judge William L. Tierney made a motion to dismiss the case as far as Torello was concerned, explaining that Torello had at no time been seen aboard the truck, and it had not been proven that he was transporting the alcohol. Judge Meade designed the, desi denied sorry, the motion and followed arguments of Prosecutor White and Judge Tierney. Judge Meade found both men guilty and imposed a fine of $200 and a 60-day jail sentence upon each of the defendants. Judge Tierney gave notice of an appeal, and the bonds were fixed at $3,000 in each case. At that time, that was a lot of money, my goodness. Prosecuting attorney White recommended a null in the cases of Viola Jeffries and James Strati. He said that they were both in the garage at the time and had a Cadillac car in waiting outside. There was no doubt in his mind that they were implicated in the transporting of the liquor, but he had no evidence to prove it. He further stated that although the woman went under the name of Jeffries for some reason, she was Strati's wife. Hmm. Judge Meade nulled both cases. Thank you for listening to the 9th of January 2024 episode of the Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast. My name is Jeffrey Bingham Meade. I'm your host. The Greenwich Town for All Seasons show podcast is made possible by Alexander Affiliates, Eastern Neurologic Services of New York, Kevin M.J. O'Connor of Jeffrey Matthews Wealth Management, and listeners like you everywhere. Please contact me at GreenwichTownForAllSeasons at gmail.com. Learn more about the show and about Greenwich, Connecticut's history by going to GreenwichTownForAllSeasons.blogspot.com. I invite you to look for the show on Facebook, Instagram, and other social media platforms. Our next show is scheduled for Tuesday, the 16th of January, 2024. See you then. Bye-bye now.